Uh, since I've been gone... I could breathe I for the very first time. Since I've been gone, I understand that uh, Eugene Monick's been in the news again. <laughs> you've seen <laughs> Have this? Have you seen this? Have you heard about <laughs> this? Heard about this? <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of been uh, keeping a very low profile other than occasionally showing up on Twitter to uh, wish people whatever the relevant holiday is to have a good one uh, and then get completely dragged with hashtags for the better part of two or three days. That seems to be the Eugene Melnick experience right now. For like two tenths of a second after I see this happen, I do feel a slight pang of sympathy for Eugene Melnick <laughs> and then it goes away after I realize that he in no way deserves any sympathy whatsoever. He's like, oh, he's just wishing people happy holidays. Why is everybody dragging him? And it's like... He's sort of like Scrooge at the end of A Christmas Carol. If he hadn't actually changed anything, he's just being like, Merry Christmas! Still kind of, you know, exploiting the workers a little bit. You dyed it in red. Remember Todd White. Where did Eric Carlson eat last night? Doesn't matter if you ask, it's the Chad and Luke Podcast. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode Bass of the Chet Sellers and Luke Peristi Podcast. I'm Luke, and I'm joined as always by the producer of Drake Batherson's upcoming album, Views from the 613. It's Chet Sellers. <laughs> How you doing, man? Pleasure to be here. You know what? Love the I'm show. doing just fine. Was that, uh, was that Love the Show? <laughs> well, I do love the show. Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm always happy uh, to be invited on. So uh, what's new with you, man? It's been a minute. You know, I've just been enjoying the senator season. It's been a great ride so far. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. What's been your favorite part? <laughs> Which of Philip Chlapik's seven minutes have been your favorite so far? Uh, I'm still coming off a high from last night's game against San Jose, which the Senators came back from a three-goal deficit in the third period and won after only seven seconds of overtime, which, as we all know, is scientifically the quickest overtime period you can have. There's no way that you could win or lose overtime in six seconds, but seven, seven <laughs> is doable. Seven seconds in overtime, also the name of like a terrible band I assume <laughs> it strikes me that that's the kind of um win you know that can really boost a team's spirits and if you put about 23 or 25 of those together in a row we might actually have a season this year this might be the beginning of a turnaround for the season uh, not necessarily a turnaround that results in making the playoffs but maybe a turnaround that results in the team actually being watchable for a change <laughs> you know at this point my ideal scenario is that the team you know does the make smart decisions and is entertaining to watch but still completely tanks right and i think even you know i said this to you yesterday i think there were fans in the canadian tire center yesterday that were like i haven't heard people cheer for a tank like that since the allied forces basically freed the occupied dutch so you know we can all look forward to that and i know there's people saying well you know this could be what turns the season around don't forget Three years ago, they've made these kind of runs before, to which I would say, well, given that it was impossible the first time they did it, there's absolutely no way they're going to do it a second time. And then you would say, yes, but they're independent events and the probability of one doesn't impact the probability of the other. That's the Monte Carlo fallacy. And then I would say to you, that's the Monte Carlo fallacy. And then we just have a fight <laughs> about that. So all that to say, as much as I enjoyed the win last night, uh, I would be extremely surprised if it was enough to turn the season around. I think really what we should be talking about 
is how do we kind of minimize the damage here and turn this team around so that it's potentially in a position to contend next year. It's too late for the playoffs. Let's get this out of the way. If you're still thinking like wins are good for the Senators, you're deluding yourself. Well, I mean, Um, I I have a certain union Facebook page that I would direct you to if you believe that to be the case. (laughs) A certain certain color of scarf, perhaps? (laughs) Well, I don't want to be that specific. A certain color of, let's say, you know, winter neckwear that has, you know, collectively organized. Uh, They have a Facebook page. And for those of you who still believe that this team will make the playoffs, I would would suggest you Google it. And uh, that's all I'll say. I do hope that the Sens are now like I want them to obviously continue to be bad for the rest of the season but I like to think that last night was the first step to them being watchably bad where you know I can watch a whole game watch them lose 3-2 in a shootout and go that wasn't a waste of my time rather than what's been happening for the past you know two and a half months which is they're down for nothing after 30 minutes and I think well Netflix does have every season of Frasier now (laughs) (laughs) I'm on board with you. I would be very happy for the team to be entertainingly bad for the rest of the year. So long as in so doing, they're kind of doing whatever they can to set themselves up for next year. Like, I think Pierre Dorian is looking to trade some players, but he wants to kind of, you know, see what he has. And I think the decision they're going to make over the next couple of months is, do we blow this thing up completely? Which, frankly, is probably not good news if you're somebody who wants to, like, keep Eric Carlson, either because he wants to stay or they want him to stay? Or is it something where we can, you know, blow part of it up or tweak here and there and bring some kids up and actually have a team that will compete next year when we give away our first round pick to Colorado? Hopefully it's lower than, you know, second. What I would want them to do anyway is say, okay, we're going to get rid of whoever we can at the deadline, like Oduya and Burroughs and a few other guys. But, you know, play Colin White, play Thomas Shabbat, play Philip Schlappick, like see what you have with those guys. You might as well. Um, And then you can decide, okay, is there enough here that we can, with a little bit better luck, turn this around next year? Or is it something that we're going to have to, like, really cut everybody except Mark Stone? For me, the biggest question that Pierre Dorian has to accurately answer is, does Craig Anderson still have it? (laughs) Because if the answer is no... Like, that's a wrap. Like, I think we've seen enough this year that Ottawa can't really fade bad goaltending for any period of time. So they have to figure out if Craig Anderson's just going through a, a downturn or if he's too old. That's a very good point, because even if everything else is okay, I mean, you know, in my view, the biggest reason why they are where they are this year is because neither of their goaltenders has been particularly good. But if everything else is working, but Craig Anderson is clearly done and Mike Condon remains the career 908 goalie that he was when they signed him to that contract. Yeah, I agree. Great they're, battler, though. Great <laughs> they're going to have to, I mean, you know, we say this every year, oh, you can always go out and find a goalie, and maybe they can, but if Craig Anderson doesn't have it, then that's the only way that they're going to compete next year is if they go out and find somebody. In a perfect world, I'd be fine with Pierre Dorian saying most of this team made the conference final last year. We're going to shuffle the deck a bit, but I don't feel bad running it back one more time with this roster and Matt Duchesne. Whether or not uh, Eugene Melnick can... uh float some operational losses with no playoff revenue is very much an open question right now. (laughs) And so we might get to the point where uh, the Sens are making some interesting moves that don't really make sense in a hockey way and more make sense in a spreadsheet finances type way. 
Well, but this happens every two years, right? Because these senators, and you could have predicted this at the beginning of the year, and you wouldn't have been wrong, only make the playoffs every other year. And every year they don't make the playoffs. They send a bunch of guys out, either for salary reasons or otherwise. And in a vacuum, it's always defensible. Like, I mean, it makes sense to move on from Jason Spetz's $7 million a year contract, given where he is and where the team is. The problem that they often have is that when they make those trades, they don't always get a, a really good return for it which is what worries me when I hear, oh, yeah, we're thinking about trading Mike Hoffman. Like you might get, you know, some decent prospects down the road. You might not, but you're not going to get another Mike Hoffman. To me, we've said this before, but like my ideal roster construction, and now we're into now we're into add the asset management portion of the podcast, is they pay a lot of money to four or five guys that are really good, like Eric Carlson and Mark Stone and Matt Duchesne and Mike Hoffman and maybe one other guy. And ideally, that one other guy isn't like a Dion Phaneuf or a Bobby Ryan. They have a goalie, and then everybody else is like young and on the way up and doesn't make a lot of money, right? That's mm-hmm. how you can be a good team that can turn players over and also not, you know, break your owner's minuscule, tiny, ever shrinking budget. How is the first name on your trade list? Not Zach Smith. Yeah, absolutely. Zach Smith is like a great depth player on like a cup finalist team and like completely superfluous on a team that's nowhere near the playoffs. He's making what three and a half million dollars this year. You know, definitely just plug a traffic, plug a Colin White in there. And the difference between Zach Smith and somebody who's making a quarter of his salary is basically going to be negligible. Yeah, like Zach Smith strikes me like as exactly the kind of guy that you could see, you know, the Blackhawks picking up for a playoff run, something like that, right? Like, I mean, he's gritty, scored 25 goals once, and, you know, apparently there's GMs around the league that like him. You know, he's a good player. He's actually, believe it or not, the longest tenured Ottawa Senator, because I think he came up in like 2008 for a game. Like, so once Chris Neal left, he's been around the longest, him and then Carlson. Uh, wow. But yeah, it's hard to believe. But he is he is the guy for sure that you're sort of like, this is a nice piece to have if you're a team that just needs this one piece and we need, <laughs> we can't even see the picture of the horse in the puzzle that we're trying to build. So, you know, we can we can send that piece somewhere else. All this to say, um, don't trade Mike Hoffman yet. What would be even worse about a Hoffman trade, and I don't know that this would actually happen, but rather than get something like good for Mike Hoffman, like a young player, a pick, a prospect, you know, some combination. They get rid of Hoffman and the return is also dumping somebody else's contract. Like, like, can you imagine the deal where they're like, we'll give you Mike Hoffman, but you have to take Dion Phaneuf and we'll get a six round draft pick back. Like, can you imagine that deal where both those guys are gone and it's like $12 million in payroll out the door uh, just to get rid of it? Like that's... Oh, you you could see it coming too. (laughs) that's, that's... that's That's the one I worry about. That trade has a disturbing air of verisimilitude to it, like, where it's extremely plausible. But I mean, I, I think you could see some some you know names go that you know maybe we thought weren't going to happen. I know they tried to shop Fanuf in the off season so that they could potentially keep Mark Mathot, um, since obviously we agreed we had to keep Cody Cece. So you never know. I mean, I think there will be you know GMs of the deadline that are like, well, if this guy gets me over the hump to win a championship, I'll figure out the you know last five years of this guy's contract track after the fact, uh, which, as it turns out, is exactly the logic that led us to having Dion Phaneuf in the first place. Speaking of Cody Cece, I'm not sure if you've been reading the reports. <laughs> uh, 
But in the famous words of the man who said, two plus two is four minus one is three quick maths, uh, man's not hot <laughs> on the uh, on the old trade front right now. Uh, oh apparently the phones are not ringing off the hook looking for uh, the Cody CC experience. <laughs> have you seen this? Have you heard about I, this? I, I have heard about this. Um, I think at some point he will have been rumored to have been the subject of a one-for-one one trade with pretty much every good young forward in the league. But they'll all come out only two years after the fact once it's clear that that deal would be ridiculous today. All of these alleged CC offers that have floated around that have been rumored. So like it was one for one for Druin. It was one for one for Hall. Duchesne at one point. Duchesne, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all of these, the only way that unfortunately Pierre Dorian can kind of save face at this point is to actually come out and show people the real offers so that people stop dragging Pierre Dorian for turning down Taylor Hall for Cody CC one for one. Like those CC offers that he actually got are like the Pierre Dorian birth certificate at this point. Like he has to disclose that even though he he shouldn't have to yeah cc's another guy that obviously we all want to see him probably go and hopefully get a fresh start somewhere else at this point i think it will be the classic one for one trade for another like disappointing young defenseman like it will be the brian lee trade or like like i don't think they want to pay cc next year or at least i hope they don't uh obviously we've said before that like the only thing that would be on par with either the massive salary dump or the trading Eric Carlson would be the Cody CC, Jared Cowan-like eight-year extension uh, in terms of getting people to cancel their season tickets. But I see him like, or the Alex Degg trade where it's like, okay, we got to cut bait on this guy. We'll bring in somebody that we can say, well, he's another prospect that just hasn't put it together. And then when he continues to not be good, you can cut bait and you have no emotional attachment to him because you didn't draft him. Like that's what's going to happen with Cody CC so that they can pay Mark Stone $7 million a year next year and then pay Eric Carlson whatever he wants i i have to believe that that is true because otherwise it's too depressing this is this is why like pierre from orleans who as we all know is always trying to improve his hockey team Mm -hmm. needs to start you know i know that they're talking about well we want to see what we have and once we get closer to the deadline there'll be more of a market for rental guys like oduya and burrows and that's probably true but at the same time he has a coach guy boucher that has what's the word i'm looking for demonstrated an unwillingness to feed babies prime cuts of meat pierre dorian can basically say okay i want to see what the kids are going to do but i worry that the only way that he can force guy boucher to do that sort of like you know billy bean and Moneyball, is to say uh you can't start burrows he plays for detroit now you know <laughs> <laughs> like you know i'm sorry but I, you cannot be trusted to use tom pyatt responsibly and so i'm gonna have to take him away from you like that's you may have to force guy boucher's hand at some point because you know guy boucher will say well the roster may be yours but the lineup decisions are mine and you know i think one can trump the other and pierre dorian may need to do that at some point it does seem like whatever flaws guy boucher had that were adorable idiosyncrasies last year are now fatal errors that should be cause for his immediate removal. And it's not so much that I think Guy Boucher is particularly different this year compared to last year. It's just more that because the results are worse, he's got to go in the eyes of many. Yeah, I don't think they need to fire Guy Boucher, and I don't think it would look good for anybody if they did. But I do think it needs to be a conversation where it's like, look, this year's done. Like, your guys could not get it done, and we are not going to win next year when you actually will be coaching for your job unless we kind 
kind of figure out a strategy for 2018-2019. So it's in your interest to stop playing <laughs> Nate Thompson and Alex Burrows and especially Gabriel Dumont as much as you are. I'm going to bring up a bunch of kids and I want you to play them. Yeah, the extent to which uh, Ottawa's problems currently mirror the uh, late Boucher-era Tampa Bay Lightning is extremely disconcerting. Yes, um, I will say that. And I think there's no question that Guy Boucher is a smart guy. And I think I had hoped that in the last five years, he would have, you know, done some reflection and thought, okay, if I got, if I get into this situation again, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to keep my approach fresh? How am I going to try to get the results? And right now, He's trying to break through that wall by basically throwing Johnny Oduya and Gabriel Dumont at a brick wall an infinite number of times until they break through. I don't think that Guy Boucher should be fired at this point, but I will say that I am disappointed with what I've seen from his approach so far. So I, I don't know how much farther they need to go into the season before they say, okay, we're we're done contending for this year. Let's break off some pieces. Let's play the kids. Like I assume that Pierre Dorian is, knows that's where they're going and has to figure out when he wants to start the process, but I think the first step is is getting Boucher on on side with that. Yeah, and, you know, I think, if anything, Boucher and Dorian seem to be, like, working in tandem lately because there have been a lot of roster moves made by Pierre Dorian, whose only justification is basically, you know, probably what Guy Boucher wants. If I'm Pierre Dorian, you know, I'm talking to Guy Boucher, I'm going, yo, I've, d- I've done you these solids. I need you to do me this solid. Yeah, no, I think um, that's exactly right. Year. And I think it's, you know, Pierre Dorian could have said, look, I was willing to take a shot on these guys when we were on the bubble and you were telling me that, you know what this team really needs? Another 2009 Drummondville Votigeur. But, you know, no, you're, you're done with that. So I think, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a quid pro quo. Pierre Dorian's actually the guy on the Senators that I have the most sympathy for right now. He got a new coach with a good PowerPoint presentation and then he Gave the new coach all the players he wanted. He went out there and, you know, he kept a lot of uh, the young guys in the fold. He got Mike Hoffman signed. He cleared out enough room that they're going to be able to sign Eric Carlson. He also went out there and made the big trade for uh, Duchesne, the one trade that everyone, like all the fans were clamoring for. He did this all within the budget constraints of his owner. Like all Pierre Durian's done is keep his coach happy, keep his owner happy, and keep the fans happy. And for this, he's got a team that's in uh, 28th place. Right. So you know, he's... I, I, am, I am sympathetic to the guy that, uh, you know, he's, he's only done everything that everyone wanted. And uh, for this, the team's still terrible for some reason. Right. So Dorian's next press conference is just going to be him shouting, are you not entertained at pretty much everyone? Uh, because he's everybody got exactly what they wanted now. And now look where we are. The other thing I'd say is that it's really been a while since we've seen Guy Boucher really just peacock in, you know, a, a really nice blazer. And I think, you know, he needs to find his smile and I think he needs to not be afraid to to dress it up a little bit. And I think that would certainly raise my spirits, hopefully raise the teams. And, and then we can kind of, you know, see what happens with the kids after that. But I kind of understand that uh, impulse to uh, not get, you know, you want to reflect the mood. And let's face it, the mood's not great right now. If Guy Boucher doesn't feel like the time is right to be uh, pulling out the tenured English professor outfits from the closet, then uh, I don't really have the strength to argue with him on that point. No, but on the other hand, I mean, I can see the argument that if um, he comes out wearing a feathered yellow blazer with a green satin turtleneck, 
people are going to say, well, it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit interesting that Guy Boucher is is being so flashy when his team is so bad. Like maybe you should focus a little more on your roster deployment and a little less on your Blazers, Guy Boucher. But I think he can legitimately say to the team, listen, I'm going to be the lightning rod here. I'm going to be the bug light. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take all the sartorial criticism from the vicious Ottawa sports media so that you guys can just keep your heads down and play hockey. That's leadership mm-hmm. to me. That's a green that sat- that's a green satin turtleneck in action. That's kind of Guy Boucher doing John Tortorella. Yes. You know, like taking taking the brunt of all that uh media eye and uh shielding his players. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. That's what I'm saying. I would like to drop uh right now the most uh fuego take I have ever had on this podcast. I I am ready for this. I Do you mind I, if I go for this right now? I am I have never been more excited to hear a take from you. Uh, I saw that there were some individuals that were taking to uh, throwing jerseys on the ice. Have you seen that? Can you confirm that? I I do believe I I saw some evidence that someone, um, I think it was during the 5-0 loss to Boston, that somebody threw a jersey on the ice. So I'm not usually the sort of guy who's going to tell people how to be a fan. In the famous words of someone or other, uh, mostly just love the passion. But I will say this, Sens fans... Should not be throwing jerseys. Okay. If we historically look at the fan bases that have thrown jerseys, they've been teams that have been awful for five or more years. We're talking like pre-McDavid Oilers. We're talking Carlisle era Leafs. We're talking like extensive, like decades long playoff droughts, mired in mediocrity, where it doesn't matter how many top five picks you get, the team stays terrible. And the sheer volume of incompetence is what overwhelms. And I'm going to say it, the Sens fans, we haven't suffered enough for this, man. We're talking about a team that just made the conference final last year. It's been nine months. And you're telling me that, you know, oh, we went on, like, the team kind of played bad for two months, so I'm going to throw my jersey. Like, come on, we haven't earned that yet. We have to be bad for so much longer before, you know, throwing a jersey on the ice becomes a reasonable thing to do. What, you're going to tell me that, like, Eugene Melnick's, like, a bad owner? First of all, you're right. But second of all, he's not even the worst owner in the division. Vinny Viola owns the Florida Panthers, and that's a guy who like nearly joined the Trump administration and also got into a physical altercation with a concession worker at a horse track. Google it. That happened. <laughs> and like, I don't care how much of a jerkwad Eugene Melnick is, allegedly. At least we're not at the point where the guy is punching concession workers. Um <laughs> So the team's playing bad this year? Yeah, you're right. And you know what? A lot of teams are playing bad this year. The Sens' problems are not unique. And I think that's one of the most annoying things that this fan base can think sometimes is that the problems with the Senators are somehow unique to the Senators. Like, oh, the Bobby Ryan contract is bad. It's like, oh, well, have you met the Boland Lucic contract? You know, oh, our owner sucks and is poor. It's like, oh, well, have you met? <laughs> a lot of other owners in the league. We're not bad enough to throw jerseys yet, and our problems are not unique compared to the rest of the league. And most of all, I think it makes Sens fans look soft. I think it makes it look like that we can't handle three months of bad hockey. And I I kind of expect more from the fan base. 
I'll be honest. That's a uh, um, that, that's a very interesting point. I can't I can't say I disagree with you. I do I do think it's true that the right time to throw a jersey if you're going to throw a jersey is when your team has been bad for a long time, but is also like getting worse or like clearly hasn't learned anything from years of futility, right? And is continuing to make terrible decisions. The Senators, as you say are a middling team that happens to be having a disappointing year, which is something that happens to a lot of teams every year. And given the way they have done this over the last several years, going back to the last quote-unquote rebuild in 2010-2011, I don't expect that this is something like for financial reasons or strategic reasons or whatever, they're going to be in a position where things are even worse next year. Like I suspect they are going to either because of luck or design or both rebound a little bit to get back on the bubble next year. There will never be a time where it will be appropriate to throw a jersey in Ottawa because they will continue to hover somewhere between 6th and 10th in the conference. So uh, hang on to your jersey. Uh, it's also it's also not a good idea to throw just because they're not particular aerodynamic. And unless you're fairly close to the ice, all you're going to do is throw it down a few rows and hit somebody in the back of the head. And then that guy's got your jersey. So yeah. <laughs> it's not uh, if you think it through, it's not uh, it's not a smart move most of the time. But I do love the passion. 75% of the roster just won two rounds of the playoffs. Like, it's insulting to think that the Senators are as bad off or as tortured as various other jersey-throwing fan bases. I'm not saying that this team is good or has played well or is like a cup threat but you know there's still a lot of good players on it and you know if all you've got to do is switch out you know the bottom 30 percent of the team there's no reason why you know ottawa can't you know win the lottery this year draft rasmus delene and then run it back again with an improved defensive core that doesn't have cody cc on it yeah and i think i mean i don't know if any of that was considered when pierre dorian protected that top 10 pick in the Duchesne deal, which looks really, really smart now, just given how they are going to be in the lottery for sure. I would um, rehire Pierre Dorian on the strength of him protecting that pick. Well, like, the, even Pierre Dorian was had this inkling. I was like, this could go wrong at any time. So the criticism I've heard, though, is that, yeah, that's true. But then that means you have to give up your first wherever it is next year. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, OK, so if you're going into a multi-year rebuild process and you want a series of top five picks to start to build a core around, and I can already hear certain people listening to this and saying, yes, that's exactly what they should be doing that will never happen in ottawa right they will never undergo a multi-year rebuild even the last time they broke pieces off at the deadline and sold them they also happened to bring in craig anderson and they made the playoffs the following year and they were like okay we've got craig anderson and mika zibanejad everything is fine now we don't need to rebuild they are really going into this thinking hey we're actually not in a bad position because we can draft rasmus Dolan or um the czech guys that Dina this year uh, and then with a few tweaks and a little bit of luck we'll be better next year and we'll be right back on the bubble that is honestly the way they're thinking about this um, so yeah next year they'll be sending I'm not even sure they're wrong to think that yeah so next year like, like they'll be sending they're not going to trade Eric Carlson and draft in the top five for the next three or four years and at the end of it it's like oh congratulations you're the Oilers like they're going to do what they can to come back and even if it's not going to make them a top five in the league team it's going to make them you know 
know, a profitable team that will hopefully sell some tickets to people that want to see some, you know, playoff action for one or hopefully two rounds. And while you can say that's kind of depressing, it's also better than the alternative, which is this year. So I fully expect they're going to see this as an opportunity to draft high, make some tweaks, come back next year and send a like a 17th overall pick to Colorado the year after. I'm on board with that. So anyway, I guess we're we're in agreement that the rest of this year is just gravy. Uh, we're playing with house money, and we're going to end up drafting Rasmus Dahlin. Uh, but next year, oh my God, we have to be good. We have to be yeah, so good the, next uh, year. The only hockey games I want to win for the rest of the year are the ones against the Leafs and the Habs. Yeah. If we go into next season with like a top three pick that is like NHL ready, Mark Stone and Eric Carlson on new long term contracts and Cody Cece somewhere else, I'm good with that. Yeah, we did it. We did it, boo. <laughs> I think we've been dancing around this issue for most of this podcast, but I think it's time that we uh, delved in. Chet, do you have some music you could hit for me right about now? Do you have anything you dig out? Let me see if I can do the drop. Folks, when a hockey team has great expectations that it fails to meet, like a DC Comic Universe film, fans and management alike reflect as the playoffs slowly recede from you. Well, it's that time again. It is time to play The Blame Game. I love it. Let's play. So, uh, Chet, I'm going to give you a list of names, and I want you to assign a percentage of blame that they should receive for this Ottawa Senators season going wrong. Do you think you can do that? I'm ready First to up play. on my list, how much blame do you assign to Eric Carlson's ankle? <laughs> if, I, if I'm blaming Eric Carlson's ankle, am I not blaming Eric Carlson? Like, um, th- this, is, this is considered a separate entity. that Because I, I can't do anything. My programming doesn't allow me to do anything that would suggest that there is any fault of any kind with Eric Carlson. Right, like it's one of the three. It's like one of the three laws of robotics. Like I actually can't (laughs) do it. Technically speaking, you could blame the part of Eric Carlson's ankle that is no longer a part of Eric Carlson. (laughs) No, I don't. um, I don't blame Eric Carlson's ankle too much. I think he obviously is not completely right, but he wasn't completely right when he came back from his Achilles surgery either. And he seemed to pull that situation together eventually. So, you know, it would be nice to see, you know, him continuing to dominate. But at the same time, it's like if he's not feeling 100 percent and the team isn't going anywhere anyway, I guess why he's not going out there on one foot like he did in the playoffs and dragging this team behind him because I think he's got to take a little bit of a longer view on that. So I I assign no blame to Eric Carlson or his ankle or the hack surgeon that should have fixed it better uh, and brought us back our beautiful boy in uh, 100% shape. I'll say this. I love me some Eric Carlson, but there's one number in his stat line that I just can't ignore. And that number is minus 20. (laughs) He takes chances. I'm not like Mr. Plus Minus in any way. And I realize the ways in which Plus Minus is bad. But just because Plus Minus is bad doesn't mean that it's meaningless. And so because one of the vectors by which the Sen season could go wrong this year was Eric Carlson failing to live up to expectations, I'm going to give uh, Eric Carlson's ankle uh, 10% of the blame for where the for where the Senators currently find themselves. Look, don't get me wrong. Eric Carlson has made some really bad plays this year and frankly more than you'd kind of hope to see. At the 
same time, he is not alone in that. And one kind of feeds on the other, right? But I think it gets to a point where the entire team is like, well, you know, we're not going to go out there and kill ourselves. And we're not going to, if we don't have a job on the line this year or next, we're not going to kill ourselves for every single puck. Like, I think you're seeing that with guys like Hoffman and Broussard as well. So I wouldn't put the blame solely on Carlson for that. It's true that the team is only as good as Carlson is going to be good, but this team is not going to be good even if Carlson drags it as much as he can for the next four months. So (laughs) tighten it up a little, Eric, but, uh, you know, we'll see you next year. So in that vein, how much blame would you assign to Craig Anderson? (laughs) I got to give Anderson at least 40 or 50%. Not that it's necessarily his fault, but he is, I think, the main reason why the Senators are where they are. And I don't think Mike Condon is going to do the job in his stead. We have talked for pretty much every season for that I can remember going into the season. The there's always some article. Is this the year that Craig Anderson finally falls off? And Mm -hmm. we've always kind of kicked that problem down the road and said, oh, well, you know, he didn't play that much when he was younger and he's going to play well into his 30s and there's other goalies that do that. But every single year there's an article, is this the year that Anderson falls off? And if you have access to a good library and a microfiche machine, you can go back and you can actually see articles about whether or not Anderson will fall off uh, in turn-of-the-century newspapers next to editorials about women's suffrage <laughs> and why we got to hear both sides of that one. Uh, that was actually a very popular uh, expression in the, in the early 1900s, got to hear both sides. So this is, not, this is not a new problem, but it is a problem that, you know, we, as much as the team depends on Carlson, like Craig Anderson has a good year. Guy Boucher looks like a genius, and this team looks like it's good. If Craig Anderson has a bad year, everybody looks really bad. Like most of what people think of as winning hockey and good coaching is actually just a hot goaltender. The last time Craig Anderson played this badly, he got traded to Ottawa. The year Craig Anderson got traded to Ottawa, he had an 897 save percentage in Colorado. And right now he's currently rocking an 896. Mm -hmm. So Craig Anderson has not been good by any stretch this year. And don't get Um, me wrong. I don't think that means they made a mistake signing him to a two-year extension. Like, I think that made perfect sense. And I can't think of a single person that at the time said, this is a really bad idea. Like, Craig Anderson had kind of been the difference maker for this team for several years and had, Mm -hmm. you know, and is, you know, indisputably the best goalie in franchise history and had a great year last year. So the question really for the rest of the year is, you know, is this what Craig Anderson actually looks like now or is this just a bad few months? And it is possible that it's a bad few months. I mean, I know that sounds maybe unusually optimistic, but he had a really tough year last year, right? Like, I mean, he played really well. He had everything going on personally. He won the Masterton. And so I can kind of see like that taking a lot out of you when you come back the following season. If this is who Craig Anderson is now, it's because he's old and not because he's a bad goalie. The examples of Craig Anderson being very, very good far outstripped the examples of Craig Anderson being very, very bad. Now, I think there's, you know, a certain type of person who maybe, you know, wants to say, you know, maybe the Senators should construct the sort of team that's not so reliant on goaltending. I don't and think there you, is I that say, team. Oh, like how many teams out there could fade an 89% save percentage from their goalie? I don't think there's any hockey team out there that's built to withstand, you know, sub 900 goalie performance. So in that way, I think you're right. Like a lot of more blame perhaps does fall on uh, Craig Anderson. 
in terms of why the Sens are not good this year. You know, I know that Condon's on that deal that kind of ends up paying him like a starter in a couple of years, and certainly they can figure out what they want to do with that. But it strikes me that we went out and got Anderson for basically less than nothing. Every year you see a guy like Cam Talbot or Scott Darling or one of these backups go somewhere and succeed. And I think if they look at this and they say, okay, you know, Anderson isn't going to work out, you know, he's just, he's not going to come back to the level that he was at. I think they need to figure out a way to go out and get one of those guys. The same way they got Mike Condon for a fifth round pick, you know, like, I mean, they're, Mm -hmm. they're all out there. Problem now is that they're paying two of them for the next couple of years. But uh, if we can trade Dion Phaneuf, we can do anything. So you're going to give uh, Craig Anderson what percent of the blame? I'm going to say 40%. I'm going to go a little less than that. I'm going to go uh, 15%. And I'll tell you why. The next option for uh, blame assignment, whether you want to call it uh, getting the bounces or whether you want to call it puck luck or whether you want to call it gripping the stick too tight, it's uh, three louders that we all know and love. It's PDO. (laughs) Do you know what the Senator's PDO is uh, this season? Uh, like negative seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I blame I blame PDO a fair bit without having the actual number in front of me. I think the senators have been bad, but they've also been unlucky. And so I'm I'm prepared to put a significant amount of blame on that factor as well. I think it's tr- I think it's actually like 96 percent, like they're full four percent under what they should be in front of the pod micah blake mccurdy puts out his uh, visualizations and one of the things he looks at is you know percentage of shots that uh that are goals for and percentage of shots which are goals against at five on five and ottawa is currently you know bottom 10 in shot percentage for and like the exact bottom of the league in shot percentage against i just don't feel like they're like naturally that bad Right. And um, it's it's also it's the same way that we look at the Duchesne trade and say, OK, well, you know, it's still a defensible good trade. And Matt Duchesne has looked really good. He's just not scoring. I'm going to give a PDO a full 25 percent of the blame for uh, why this season's gone wrong. That sounds good to me. I'll go with that. So you just talked about this and uh, now we'll get into a bit more. How much of this season can be attributed to uh, the Duchesne trade itself? <laughs> Well, I'm trying to think of the last time that the Senators made a big in-season trade like this for, you know, a name player. Like maybe Runeblad for Turris, but even in that case, it was like basically a young player for a young player. I mean, arguably there's the Bobby Ryan trade, but that was a trade where it was picks and prospects for a name player as opposed to, you know, trading your number one center for your new number one center. So I get that there's like some bad karma implications from doing that, especially given how much we all liked Kyle Turris. But I think it just happens to be a matter of bad luck and not a... There's no causality, I think, to that trade happening and then the Senators' season going in the tank. Because quite frankly, and I was complaining about this on the podcast for several episodes in a row, uh, they were not that good in October or November before that trade either. Like they had Mm -hmm. won some games, but they had also choked away a lot of games uh, early on in the year. And we were saying those are points they need to get. So while it is convenient that they have completely fallen off the cliff after the Duchesne deal, I don't think it is the trigger that caused it. And I do think the logic behind making the deal uh, was and remains defensible. I completely agree with what you just said. And nine times out of 10, I think that, you know, basically no blame should be assigned to the Duchesne trade. But I can't help but shake this feeling. The Duchesne trade is either 0% or 100% to blame. And I'll tell you why. It's not because of Matt Duchesne. 
It's because of Andrew Hammond. <laughs> I cannot shake this feeling that after the Hamburglar went on his memorable run to get Ottawa into the playoffs after they were 14 points out, I just feel like that was a karmic debt that needed to be repaid. And it's possible that once uh, Andrew Hammond left the Senator's organization, that bill came due, and now we are paying <laughs> uh, paying for that run okay. in uh, 2015. So Andrew Hammond is the haunted tiki statue of this franchise, basically. That, he that is, is what I believe. <laughs> and they're now, they're now cursed uh, because of it. No, that's a, that's a fair point. We invested a lot of hope and psychic energy in Andrew Hammond, and without knowing exactly how things went down you can argue that he was not repaid uh you know when he maybe should have been given a little bit more slack than he was uh we may never know i'm not even going to say that the senators are cursed i just think that maybe they borrowed those 21 wins and now they're paying them back (laughs) that could be so you know what if you're gonna i would rather get them all out of the way at once rather than spread them out uh over time I, like I pref- a band-aid. Yes, exactly. I prefer the peaks and valleys going from 6th to 10th in the conference as opposed to hovering right around 8 or 9 all the time. So now we're going to move on to management. Chet Sellers, we've been talking about this a bit, and now uh, I need your authoritative take on this. How much blame should Guy Boucher take for the senator's results this year? Oh, I'll give him 10 or 15%. I think he has not been quick enough to make changes. I think obviously we've said this a million times. He has been too reliant on his proven mediocre veterans at the expense of younger players. But at the same time, I don't think that even if he had made optimal lineup decisions all year that this team would necessarily be you know in a significantly better spot i think there's a few instances where you can say you're not enjoying tom pyatt responsibly like sending him out first in the gd shootout (laughs) Um, which is just sort of at that point you know you're just you're just looking for a fight with with everybody but i do think that the performance and the luck has been poor enough across the board that i don't think guy boucher alone is the reason for this team's decline now I will increase that number at the end of the year if he does not, at this stage, change his coaching style significantly and change his roster up quite a bit. I I mean, we did see last night that Shabbat played 21 minutes, most of them with Carlson. That's exactly the kind of thing I want to see. That is where the rubber is going to meet the road for me with Guy Boucher over the rest of the year. Uh, And if he doesn't do that, then I will assign him more of the blame, but also assign it to Pierre Dorian for not reining him in. Guy Boucher is kind of like, you know, your buddy who tells you about this guy he knew in Europe. And it's just like, yo, man, like when I was in Europe, like I knew this guy, Tom Pyatt, like a total legend. Like this guy was crazy. You'd like, you, you'd put this guy in a shootout, give him three shots of Jägermeister. He could do anything. He was wild. And he just keeps on building up this legend of Tom Pyatt where you're like, okay, like whatever yeah i believe you and then finally tom pyatt's coming over and you're like yo trust me this this is the guy i told you about legend like wait (laughs) wait to get a hold of this guy this guy's the best and then you put him in the shootout i don't know man i think maybe that you know it was just like this sort of lightning in a bottle thing and like maybe i think you're looking at this through rose tinted glasses i think maybe just because it was fun in europe doesn't mean that you should be uh trying to recapture the magic on this side of the pond you know yeah it's like let's leave europe in europe we had a great yeah. time we'll never recreate it no i i agree with that i think the future is in Guy Boucher's hands if he chooses to uh if he chooses to seize it 
Watching Guy Boucher coach right now is like watching the world's slowest genetic optimization algorithm learn, where it <laughs> takes like 10 games before the algorithm goes, I'm going to try Shabbat with Carlson. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think we agree that might work. <laughs> yeah. It's like and the, like, um, it's like the opposite of what is it? Alpha Zero, that thing that learned how to play chess in four hours is a Google yeah. built. Yeah. It's, uh, it's whatever the opposite of that is. That's Guy Boucher, uh, and his lineups this year so far. The algorithm has selected Matt Duchesne playing with Mike Hoffman. <laughs> Finally! Oh my god. <laughs> what took so long? <laughs> you know, I don't think that uh, we can end this conversation without going fully to the top, and therefore I have to talk about uh, Pierre from Orleans. How much blame should uh, Pierre Dorian get? I think people didn't think they'd necessarily be going to Game 7 of the conference final, but nobody thought, looking at this roster in October, that they would be where they are now. So I don't think Pierre Mm -hmm. Dorian deserves a ton of blame. Um, You know, I'm sure that it will come out that there are other things around the margins that he probably could have done. But this isn't a year where I think you could have just traded a fifth for Mike Condon and turned the year around. Yeah, and even the extent to which I do blame Pierre Dorian, which I'm going to say is 20%, I I would give Guy Boucher 30% of the blame. And like the extent to which I give Pierre Dorian 20%, his 20%, as far as I'm concerned, are like times that he didn't say no to Guy Boucher. You know, maybe he shouldn't have just you know blindly given you know his coach every player he wanted. But I understand why he did because it seemed to work well for him last year. And I think that uh, Pierre uh, really looked at him and uh, Guy as a team and wanted to believe that you know working together they could get results better than uh, results that if they were at odds philosophically. You know. Yeah, and and like Boucher, I do think that this second half of the year is far more important for Pierre Dorian than everything up until this point, because he now can't really get things wrong. He has to figure out um, how to clear a lot of dead weight, which hopefully involves actual dead weight and not Mike Hoffman. He has to figure out how to get Carlson and Stone re-signed. He has to basically put this team in a position to succeed next year. Uh, He may also have to fight his own coach. Uh, but that is like the test for him now is what he can get at the deadline, how he can get the team positioned going into next year, uh, and what he can do in terms of making sure that Eric Carlson retires an Ottawa senator. Yep. Um, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how it goes. <laughs> Do we need to talk about how much we blame Eugene Melnick for this? Uh, I haven't been doing the math, but whatever percentage of blame I have left, and even most of the blame I gave to Craig Anderson, I'm reallocating to Eugene Melnick. Yeah, it's 100%, <laughs> isn't it? It's 100%. That's it. At the end of the day, this whole exercise was useless. It's all Eugene Melnick's fault. Uh, all right, folks. We are. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there for this week. We'll be back soon. Um, Hopefully Mike Hoffman doesn't get traded, but if he does, boy, will we have things to say about it. You have to um, visualize the, uh, you know, the world you want to live in. That's really, that's the secret, you know, which, which I live by. And I think part of that is, is picturing a world where we're doing this podcast again and Mike Hoffman is still an Ottawa senator. I am going to visualize that and we shall achieve it. Did you see that Guy Boucher recently came out and said, you know, there isn't one system, but there is, in fact, many systems that they adjust <laughs> depending on who they're playing? It's systems all the way down. Did that disconcert you at all? Because I, I thought that was like some false prophet talk. Like after, <laughs> you know, we've been very pro system on this podcast. And, you know, I thought that may have been... Uh, 
you know, the system's chief prophet turning his back on the religion. But the system, I mean, the system is not, you can't think of the system as being like one omnipotent being sitting on a golden throne. You know, uh, the system is everywhere. The system is infinite. You can't basically just say the system is one thing when the system is, the system is everything. Uh, and some other BS from the end of the Matrix. <laughs> 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 All right, folks, uh, thank you for listening. Um, Happy New Year, good system, and we will talk to you again soon. And uh, hope the Sens entertain you as they continue to lose and secure that top three draft pick. See you next time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Christy and Sowers were a couple of fowlers who both still live with their moms. Town's local hockey team down with some microphones on. No other podcast was finer. Or was more of a hit with the big rig diners. We never thought they'd make it past episode five. Whoa, somehow these dudes named Shed and Paris are alive. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So uh, did you watch any of the World Juniors? I was not watching the Team Canada game last night because, as you know, as a free man on the land, I respect the sovereignty of no nation. <laughs> Yeah, you're not really, uh, you don't recognize any tournament that uh, validates the uh, the nation-state system at all. No, um, and frankly, I, I the whole concept of globalism offends me. <laughs>